As we come to the scripture, let me ask, please, that you bow with me to pray. Father in heaven, now as we open your word, we realize our fingers perhaps are nimble enough to open this book, but we know the condition of our hearts, and so we pray that you would help us. We know your spirit within us uh, is there, helping us, showing us, bringing to light that which is true, so we pray Holy Spirit, that you would work that in us even now. Show to us that in Jesus this new covenant has come, that you have written or writing your very law upon our hearts. So I pray that what we read resonates then with us and we believe. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Jeremiah and chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We've already read some of this in our... Um, responsive readings this morning just to kind of prep us and to get us up with this. I went to to read verses 1 uh, through 25. That's not the whole of it, but that's uh, sufficient. I especially want to to stick at the background and then for us also to be able to uh, once again think through uh, Jeremiah's prayer for that will focus really our attention in a good way. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, was, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the courts of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declared the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of uh, Shalom, your uncle will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at uh, Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Animal, my cousin, came to me in the courts of the garden in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew it was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, and got witnesses, and weighed the money on, my, on scales. Then I took the uh, scaled deed of purchase, uh, con- the sealed deed of purchase, containing the uh, terms and conditions, and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of uh, Neriah, the son of uh, Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Barak in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed and of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Well, after I'd given the deed of purchase to uh, Baruch, the son of uh, Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, 
but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and might indeed, whose eyes are upon all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with strong hand and outstretched arm, with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Now, as we begin, let me ask this question. How is it that Jeremiah was able to maintain faith, that is to say, how is it that Jeremiah was to continue to speak that which the Lord had given him to say, to do that which the Lord had given him to do? Indeed, how is it that Jeremiah was able to persevere in faithfulness to God as a man who lived in Jerusalem at a time that it was very, very difficult to live in faithfulness to God? Right, you get it? How is it that Jeremiah was able to maintain faith in the midst of all this? How was he able to continue to, to speak that which God had given him to speak, to do that which God had given him to do, to persevere in faithfulness, to be a faithful man of God, to God, in, in Jerusalem at that particular point in, in time? And, and then this corollary to that question. How is it that Jeremiah was able to live in the tension between what he saw... And what he knew was true. The tension between what he saw, that is the coming destruction of the city, yet in the midst of knowing that there would in fact be a restoration, and in fact that restoration would be even bigger than just the city itself, would be more than he could ever imagine in the context of this new covenant and this whole new Jerusalem. What is, how is Jeremiah able to live in the midst of that tension? Now I ask those questions obviously with an eye towards us. How is it? That we maintain faith. How is it that we continue to speak that which God has given us to say? How is it that we continue, maintain faith, to continue to do that which God has given to us to do? How is it that we maintain faithfulness in the midst of the world in which we live while it may not be as difficult to maintain faith as it was in Jeremiah's day? Yet, it still is a difficult place, the world in which we live. How do we maintain faith? And how then do we live in the tension between what we see and what we know is true? We see in the world in which we live, knowing, however, that a day is going to come, as we read from Revelation chapter 21, when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Very different, it appears. Similar, I suspect, it will be the earth, but similar, 
but different because there'll be no more crying, no more grief, no more tears, no more poverty, no more injustice. How do we live knowing that is true yet seeing what we see? Who with me? All right, background. Jeremiah's situation. He was six. He, he came into his work, you remember, in about 627 BC. It's about right now, as we read chapter 32, it's about 588 or 87 BC, right in there. So, some years since he began. He began under good King Josiah, you remember. Good King Josiah was king in, in ancient Judah. At a time when the law was rediscovered, they found the book of the law and they began to practice it and and he enforced, Josiah did, the worship of God again in the temple and in the places of worship. And so things were well then in Jerusalem, in Judah. However, after Josiah's death, things reverted back to the way it was before. Josiah, people again sinned, rebelled against God. Uh, The worship of God was not done in the temple. Idols came in and all of that. And so God pronounced his judgment and he did that through this prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah came with the message that God is going to send another country, other enemies who will come and destroy the city. That would be the judgment against ancient Judah and the city of Jerusalem. So that was indeed coming. Again, by the time this is written, chapter 32, the last king of Judah is king, Zedekiah, and he's in his 10th year, realize he'll only reign 11. So it's close to the end, within the last year, really, of the life, this life of the city of Jerusalem. It's about to be destroyed around the city. The the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, same people, are coming. They've set up these siege walls, which do one of two things, or really two things. First, they surround the city in such a way that nothing can get in and get out, meaning that the people will ultimately, if nothing else happens, starve to death. Because nothing can get into the city. No food can get into the city. And so you can only imagine what it's like to be in the city and realize this is happening. You can't get out. Nothing can get in. And and therefore, uh, you know that it's only a matter of time till you will starve to death, you and your children. And also, it sets up these mounds, siege walls, mounds, so that if at any one time they think you're vulnerable enough, they'll just simply come in and take you. So that's the situation. Zedekiah is there. He's rebelled against God, but he's also rebelled against the Babylonians. He, he's unreasonable. He won't even negotiate with them. And, uh, and he won't even give in to them. So it's going to get worse and going to get worse because of his obstinacy. And so Jeremiah comes and says, here's what's going to happen, Zedekiah. The Babylonians are going to be successful. They are going to come into the city. And you're going to be taken. And so in response to that, he does what every king would do. He puts Jeremiah in prison. Hey. I like the expression as it is in the ESV. He shut him up in prison. He has two meanings there. He was shut up in prison and he shut up in prison. And there he was. And we know what happens if you read chapter 52 of Jeremiah, the last chapter. You realize that exactly what Jeremiah has prophesied will come to pass. That uh, there will be a planned escape by some in Jerusalem to try to get out. They'll be captured. Zedekiah among them. He'll watch as... The king of Babylon kills his sons and his officials. Zedekiah's eyes will be plucked out and he'll be imprisoned in Babylon. In the midst of all of this, Jeremiah receives a word from God. I want you to buy some land in Jerusalem. (laughs) I think Jeremiah is probably about to turn him into the Realtors Association, saying God has got some issues here about the value of land. What an odd thing. What a crazy thing. 
And he says, your cousin, Hannibal, is going to come to you. And, and it seemed crazy, but in one sense, it wasn't so crazy, I suppose, because in, in those days, ancient, the laws of ancient Israel would be in effect, which would mean if you own land in your family, and the owner of the land, the one who's, in whom the land is in possession, uh, comes to a situation where you're destitute, that person can sell that land, but, but it must be redeemed by someone else in the family, so that... The land stays in the family. If there's no one to redeem it, they could sell it outside, I suppose. But, but at the moment, there is Jeremiah. Hannibal probably realistically is destitute like everybody else. And so he comes to his cousin, Jeremiah, to buy this land. So it's, it's reasonable in that sense, but it's unreasonable still in the sense that Jeremiah is in no better situation than Hannibal. I mean, the city is still under siege. It's going to collapse land ownership is going to fall into the hand of the enemy very soon. So why would he buy it? Well, unless he thought that, in fact, a day would come when his family would return. Now, Jeremiah wouldn't return because it would be decades before all this return would happen. He would be dead. It would be the children and grandchildren of the people that were being exiled presently that are in Babylon that will return. But... but but at least it would be in the, in the, in the family's name. Uh, I mean, it would be even if Hannibal kept the property, but, 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 but it comes to Jeremiah to purchase it. But of course, we realize that neither Hannibal nor Jeremiah was behind this purchase. It was God. He was calling Jeremiah to do to an act, an act of prophetic word. He had had him do this before. You remember Jeremiah went to the potter's house and enacted a prophecy. There was a prophetic word that came from that visit to the potter's house. What was happening at the potter's house was a prophetic word to all the people. You remember that God had called Jeremiah to wear a linen girdle or, or loincloth, really. And, and, and that became, that may be more weird than this, that became uh, a, a prophetic word as well to the people. And now, another prophetic word is coming. And that prophetic word is clear. Jeremiah, put your money where your mouth is. Jeremiah, if you really believe there's going to be a restoration of Jerusalem, buy a land. If you really think the people are going to come back, invest in Jerusalem. What better investment to go? It's a long-term investment. So I want to make sure that everybody knows that you've made this investment. I want to make sure that everybody knows that you've done this. So, so make sure that there are witnesses and make sure you carry out all the proper proceedings of, of signing and sealing. And, and, and then, of course, uh, make sure the deeds are recorded. And, and just because it's going to be decades, decades put, them, put the, the records in an earthenware vessel because that will last a long time. The Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, were found in such vessels after a couple thousand years. So he said, oh, they'll retain uh, the record if you, if you do that. And so Jeremiah does all of that. And there he finds himself. He's, he's purchased this property just like, uh, just like God had said. Uh, but I don't think we should underestimate... How odd this was, even for Jeremiah. I mean, you can tell by the, by the narrative God speaks to him, but it isn't until Hannibal actually shows up and says, let's make this deal, that Jeremiah goes, oh, that was of the Lord. He probably thought it was the pizza he ate the night before, just sort of, whoop, whoop. That, could, that couldn't have been the Lord to say, buy the land, redeem the land of the family. It couldn't have been God. It, it, it must, but then Hannibal actually shows up and he goes, oh, oh, all right, all right, I'll buy the land. 
So now the question is, how does Jeremiah process that? How How does he think that through? How does he maintain his faith? in the midst of all of this, to continue on. Um, he prays. Now that, he prays, tells us that he has faith. What, he prays, I think, is insightful to us to see how he maintains that faith. That, he prays, shows that he, shows that he has faith. You see, when we're wavering, when we're bewildered, when we're confused, even, dare I say, when we doubt... It isn't, it, isn't necessary, it doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't believing God. In fact, those who are bewildered by him, confused by him, even doubt at times, do so because they actually do believe in him. And they say, what I'm seeing isn't squaring with what I know to be true about you. We see this all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. We see it in Abraham. Remember, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham knows that there's a promise from God that he's going to have many descendants. His nephew lives in Sodom. Not only that, he knows about the righteousness of God. And he begins to think, God, how can you do this? What if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you really destroy them? God says, of course not. Well, what if there are 40? Well, of course I won't destroy them. Well, there are 30 righteous people, God. No, what if there are 20? No, what if there are 10? God says, no, I wouldn't do that if there were 10. Abraham gets the point. God is righteous. I get it. There must not be any righteous. And then, of course, he gets Lot out of the city. Very similar in the life of Job, for instance. Job's confusion wasn't that he didn't believe in God, but what he, that he did. His difficulty was, I, I don't see how my life is squaring with what I know to be true. Now, of course, he didn't have perfect understanding, perfect knowledge of God. God would tweak his knowledge of God some in the midst of this experience, especially at the end. But Job wasn't coming at this because he didn't believe, but because he did. You might remember Habakkuk. Habakkuk looked at the world, the prophet Habakkuk, he he looked at the world and he saw great sin and he said, but God is just, how can this be? Again, he didn't quite see things the way God did. God would bewilder him more before the day was out, but he would bring him to faith. As happened with Abraham, as happened with Job, as happened with all who come before him, trusting, even wondering even bewildered, even confused. So you can only imagine Jeremiah. It, it kind of begins, you can see it in, in the opening part of his prayer. Uh, Notice verse 16. We read, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God. Now, if you would trace that little expression, Ah, Lord God, through Jeremiah, you find that he uses it on three other occasions. Always when he's confused. It's a sense, as one author put it, he begins his prayer with a groan. Oh, God. You might remember when God first called Jeremiah, who was young, and, and, um, and, and God calls Jeremiah and he says to him, would you go and be my mouthpiece, essentially? And Jeremiah says, oh, Lord God, I'm just a kid. Do you really know what you're doing here? I don't understand why you're calling me to this. I'm just a kid. Oh, Lord God. So you get the same sense, he's saying, oh, Lord God, I, I still, I, I bought the land. I did it. You said it was confirmed. I get that. I, I'm just still not quite sure why you had me do that. Oh, Lord God. So it begins, in a sense, with this, with this groan, with this sense of, God, I'm bewildered. But, but notice how he goes in his prayer. 
He speaks of God first. He doesn't first say, God, I'm confused. He doesn't first say, God, here's the situation. He says, God, don't you understand they're besieging the city and so forth and so on. He he begins by talking about God to God. Do, Do we pray like that? Do we begin our praying talking about God to God? When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, I want you to start your prayers by talking to God about God. Our Father in heaven. God knows where he is, by the way. We don't need to tell him, oh, you're in heaven. God's phew, good. I thought it was on 4th Street. No, he knows where he is. We need to know where he is. We need to begin our praying as we come into the presence of God consciously. When I come into your presence, I can see you. Or I know something about you as we talk. I haven't got a clue what you're doing when you're emailing me or doing all those sorts of things. But I know you. There's a sense of that. But, but he says, I want you to be reminded of who God is. He's different. I want you to be reminded of who he is. Therefore, ah, our Father in heaven, your name is holy. All right. I know to whom I speak. Your name is holy. God knows his name is holy. We don't need to tell him that. But we need to say that. So we begin our prayers talking to God about God, our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Oh yes, you're the king. You're the one who rules and reigns. It's about your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Oh yes, you're the Lord. It's your will about which I ought to be concerned. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven this place where God dwells. All right, I do have needs, by the way. I need bread. I need forgiveness. And I need help with my walk in holiness so that I don't succumb to temptation. But we begin our praying talking to God, about God. Not that God doesn't know who he is, but to make sure that we know who he is. So, this prayer, you see, begins with the Jeremiah talking about God to God. Ah, oh, Lord God. And that first expression, Lord God, if you're a Bible and you're looking at it, it, may, it could be that, that this sense of Lord God is in capital letters, at least either the Lord part or the God part. Because this is this sense of sovereign one. This is this Yahweh. This is, comes from the Hebrew verb to be. You might remember that when Moses was called by God to go to Egypt to bring the people from Egypt into the land of promise, Moses was stuttering and he was bewildered and reluctant and he said okay God who shall I say has sent me and God gives him this name he says tell them I am that is tell them the verb to be has sent you what does that mean it means that God is he simply is he always is any moment in time he is before time he is he always has been there never will be a time when he won't be there hasn't been a time when he hasn't been he is He's the sovereign one, the Lord of all creation. So Jeremiah begins with that. And it isn't just this majestic sense of who God is. Yes, okay, I'm getting it. I say that, but, but that's so hard to get. We don't know anybody like that. We don't know anybody that can, that can say, oh, I'd like another planet and get one. Right? We don't know anybody like that. He is. And so, so now all of a sudden, with all that's going on, and all this confusion, you notice what Jeremiah is doing. He's putting himself 
into God. He's putting himself into the context, into the very presence of God. I'm bewildered. I don't understand. But let me first think about the one who's asked me to do this, to buy this land. Let me, let me, let me, let me think about this one who's Yahweh, who's, who is, who is, I am, who is the sovereign Lord God. Let me, okay, all right. Okay. And then he begins to list. And he says, it's you that's made the heaven and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Because you're the creator, it means that nothing is too hard for you. Nothing in creation is more powerful than the creator. So whatever it is that's happening, it isn't because God's too weak to stop it. Whatever it is that God has promised will come to pass because he's, nothing's too hard for him. And, and you can only imagine what's going through Jeremiah's mind. How are these Babylonians ever going to be stopped? Oh, they're going to come and take the city and all of that. I get it. But then we're going to be exiled in their land. Why will they ever let us come back? And even if they do let us come back, God, still the problem isn't the Babylonians. The problem is our rebellion against you. What keeps getting us into trouble, what keeps causing judgment to come upon us, what's caused the land to be taken in the first place, is the fact that we're sinners. So how are you going to stop that from happening again? It's been happening ever since the very beginning. How is any covenant that you have with us going to stop that There's a new covenant, he said. A new covenant when sin will be remembered no more. Thus, all will know me. Thus, uh, you'll be my people and I'll be your God. Thus, my law will be written upon your minds and hearts in the new covenant. A new covenant is coming. So to deal with the sin of the people in a way that the sin of the people has never been dealt with before. And that isn't too difficult for me. The Babylonians aren't too difficult for me. The, the people of Judah aren't too difficult for me. There's nothing too difficult for me because I'm the creator of all that is. You can just get the sense of sigh in Jeremiah. Could, all right. All right. You show steadfast love to thousands so that whatever's happening at the moment, the destruction of Jerusalem, any of that, isn't happening because God isn't loving. His steadfast love, his faithful love is shown to thousands. You repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. That is to say, he's just. So that whatever's happening isn't because God is unjust. So we have God who's creator, who's powerful, nothing too hard for him. We have this God who is. We have this God who is loving. We have this God who also is just. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed. He's saying your purposes, your counsel, your purposes are always perfect. You're wise. You're perfectly wise. So whatever's happening isn't happening because you're not wise. Whatever's happening isn't happening because your purposes aren't right or good. They really are. Because that's who you are. You're mighty indeed. Nothing can stop you. Whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man. In other words, he's saying, God, it isn't that, that, that something snuck up on you. This isn't happening because the Babylonians have sort of slipped under the radar and here they are coming against us. It isn't that. You know you're the creator of all that it is. You can keep them from coming, but you haven't. In fact, you've brought them. It isn't because you don't love. It isn't because you don't love us. It isn't because your counsel, it isn't because your purposes are wrong, is wrong. It isn't because you can't see. And so then Jeremiah begins to rehearse all the history that his people has 
there and he says, you've shown signs and wonders in the land and to this day in Israel among all mankind, you've made a name for yourself as at this day. You, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and a strong and outstretched arm with great terror. You've, you've given them this land which you swore to your fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They entered and took possession of it. So he says, everything that you had promised came true, but then they sinned, they rebelled against you, and just as you said, you would bring judgment. So it's here. All of it's here. So Jeremiah then places all of that in God. And his last sentence, which we anticipate to be his request, is more of a statement than a request. It's almost as if he's resolved to all of this. He says, yet, O Lord God, you've said to me, buy the field, get witnesses, even though this is all happening. You get a sense at that moment in time that Jeremiah is... Resolved, He's in some sense of peace. He still doesn't get it. It's as if there's, there's the faith-searching understanding, faith-seeking understanding. He still doesn't quite get it. He has all of this in the place of God. But, but you see a sense of resolved contentedness in him. Okay. I bought this land. Okay. You're God. I'll play this one out. You ever feel that way? We have a great promise from God of a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem that's coming. Where the terms of the new covenant will be manifested in perfection. When will those sins forgiven completely? When we'll know the Lord. When we know that we'll belong to him. He's our God, we're his people. When, when his law really be, will, will really be written upon our hearts, our inclinations will be totally, utterly for him. And we'll live in such a way, you see, that brings him joy. And we live in this world. And we're called to live in holiness and godliness in a world that doesn't care about our holiness and godliness. In a world that can criticize our holiness and godliness. We're called to put to death, as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, sexual immorality and evil passions and so forth. And yet we live in a world that defines sexual morality in such a way that those of us who understand sexual morality in the ways of God have been called immoral. We're called to put away anger and, and malice and slander. Yet we live in a world where those are common, everyday occurrences, everyday things, everyday characteristics of people, sometimes rewarded. We live in a world that, in which... We are to be compassionate and kind, yet in a world that isn't. We live in a world, we're to be humble and gentle in a world that isn't. We're called to be patient and forbearing and forgiving in a world that isn't. And yet that's how we're to live. How do we maintain faith to continue to do that, knowing that a day is coming when the new Jerusalem will be here and we will be a part of it? How do we continue on in faith in that? We're called to marry in a world that's redefining marriage. And some who believe in marriage as God has established it live in very difficult marriages and they say, God, we live in a world where parents are to love children yet we know children unloved. And some we know us have been perhaps unloved and we say, God, I thought 
We're to live in this new covenant. And we get this sense, yes, I've been born again. I have new inclinations toward God. But there seems to be very strong competing inclinations. How can that be? God, I know sin's forgiven, yet I still feel at times a burden of guilt. Why is that? We know this new covenant. We know the new Jerusalem to come. We know all the promises of God. And the question is, can that really happen in my life, our lives? We know we're called to speak of Christ to our family, friends, and and others. We're to send some all throughout the world so that this gospel will be, be known. And yet, it seems like there's such resistance to this gospel. And we say, but God, you've called us to that. How do we maintain faith in the midst of that? How do we continue on in the midst of that? There's sometimes at the end of the day that even as I rehearse the attributes of God and and who he is, I end up saying, "But, but, but God, look at this. How do we live in the tension between what I see and yet what I know is true? That's when we refocus our gaze. As Jeremiah did, Uh, I know what I see, yet I know that which is true, that which comes from God. We focus our gaze upon Jesus. He's the one who's revealed God to us as fully as we know him. He's the one who has come to make God known, no more so than on that night in which he was betrayed. The scripture says that he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, new covenant, sins remembered no more. All people in this covenant knowing God, all people in this covenant belonging to God, He their God, they His people, that intimacy to all the people in this covenant of God, having His law written upon their hearts, being transformed. So that they love that which God loves. This is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, do this in remembrance of me. We refocus our gaze. We think about Jesus in the midst of these difficulties. In fact, all the time. Why? Because we see in him the Lord God. We see the sovereign one. We see the one who is I am. We see this very one who is just. And judgment will come against sin as it came against Jerusalem on the days of Jeremiah. But also this one who is steadfast love. This one is faithful to his promises. This one who does redeem. This love expressed in judgment not on us, but upon his very son. So that all that keeps us from God is taken away. Sins remembered no more so that we can enter into the very presence of God 
with confidence, boldly as the scripture says, to live in him and take everything before him. This new covenant in which sins are forgiven, which we know God, we belong to him, his inclinations, his law at work in us by his spirit. We do it just the way Jeremiah did it. He, bewildered, wondered, focused upon God. We, in the midst of our life, focus upon God. Just like Jeremiah, he had this certain promise, yet still was in the land as owner. We have this great promise, yet we're here. How are we to live? As if that promise is true. Because it is. And how do we know it's true? Because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven. You are God, the sovereign one, creator of all that is. You are the God of steadfast love. You are the God of perfect justice. You're the God of perfect might. So we pray that you would focus our gaze upon you, whatever is besieging our city, whatever is coming against us, whatever is there that causes us to wonder about how we're to live, what we're to say, what we're to do. That you'd focus our gaze upon you in such a way that we would realize all that you say is true. All that you've done is reliable. And thus we're to live following after you. Father, I pray that you would be with us in this. That even in this moment, as we come to this table, that you would strengthen our faith. Take this bread, take this juice. Set it apart in such a way that through it, we might know the very presence of our Lord Jesus. And that upon him we may feast. That our faith would be maintained. That we would be able to persevere in faithfulness. Not because of bread and juice. But because of looking upon Jesus. This I pray. In Jesus name. Amen.